You are very welcome to the March episode of the Attic Sessions and this is a very special one because we are here in the beautiful county of Clare as the guests of the Ennis Book Club Festival which is now in its 11th year and um, hosting incredible discussions and readings and general crack all in the name of books and readers. So we're delighted to be here and looking forward to meeting lots of people over the course of the weekend and finding out what's going on. Um, as chairperson of the Ennis Book Club Festival Committee, I am delighted to welcome you to the 11th Ennis Book Club Festival. As the only dedicated book club festival in the country, we have endeavoured over the years to put Ennis on the map. And it's wonderful, therefore, to see so many familiar faces here this evening. So many book clubs in particular who have travelled the length and breadth of the country to be here with us. When you mention the name William Trevor to anyone, um, really the ballroom of romance is bound to be mentioned in the conversation. And that's why I decided today to focus on that short story. Um, but I want, to, I want to situate it in the wider context of Trevor's life and work. And I'm sure everyone here um, knows Trevor's work really well. Um, maybe some people are new to his work. Um, maybe some people have read some of his, of his novels and some of his short stories and not others. So hopefully at the end of the day today, I'm going to send you all out full of zeal for reading William Trevor and with lots of book club arguments and suggestions and lots of the things to be had um, along the way. I'm not a horrible person yeah. when I'm not yeah. writing. Yeah. 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 I drive myself crazy. Yeah. I say, okay, I'm going to take time off. Yeah. Um, or, and the time off goes longer than it should, and I haven't got back time to the writing. I'm very bad with myself. I'm very bad with my poor husband because I get grumpy. Uh, I need to be creating. I mean, it's just... I, I, was, I wrote a piece for um, the John Paul Retreat Centre, an Irish, a, a Catholic centre in England, that especially for, it's, a, it's like a, a retreat for um, grieving parents that have lost a child. Um, and some of you may or may not know that I'm childless. I, I had miscarried my, my babies. And in fact, the olive season, the second of the olive farm books, is, is about that and the regenerative power of nature and planting olive trees. Um, and I wrote last week because they said to me, will you just write something for the site? And I was just saying that, you know, looking 20 years on now from the last child that I lost, which was a little girl, um, yes, I could say, I wonder what she'd be doing now, and would we be friends, and etc., and would she be at university, or etc. And I do occasionally think those things, but mostly what I think is that actually a path was opened up for me that I might never have been able to take if I didn't have her with children. A path that I didn't know was coming my way, and I'm very fortunate. It's no point in going back and, and grieving. Of course, one grieves, and that's a very important process. But regretting, I think regret is a negative um, energy that doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, I think to be able to say that actually the, the time that I've had has given me the chance to get to know trees, to fight for bees, which I'm passionate about, um, to travel the Mediterranean, to bring back, you know, I've brought back stories from Syria that nobody can bring them back now because they've been destroyed. So I've been given a very special role, I feel, and I'm enormously grateful for it, and I probably wouldn't have had that if I... You just don't know what's there. So 
I'm talking to some festival goers who we've just nabbed to have a chat. And if I can ask your names. Monica. And Gronje. So can I ask why you're here? Um, well, we've come for the last three years in concession, whatever. We've a uh, book club in Tullamore and we usually try and make the effort to come down once a year, whatever, and just I suppose, see what's going on and gives us an insight into new books and that, you know. And you're here for It's the 10 Best Books yes. session. Um, and why are you at this particular event? It's really just, um, I suppose, to listen to other people's perspective on good books and maybe get a few ideas what they might read for the coming year uh, in the book club. But, um, and we just meet people as well that we've met previously. So the social element is good. And if people were wondering why they should come to this particular festival, what might you say to them? Um, well, I'd say that it's got an action-packed um, itinerary. There's something, loads of different things on at the one time even for you to choose from. So generally we come down, we might go to different events between us, whatever. We would normally all go for this particular one, the 10 best books. Um, but generally, like we all kind of do our own thing, meet up in the evening then for dinner and go out then whatever night. So it's lovely. And the, the top survival tip for anybody coming? <gasps> After last night now, <laughs> the top survival tip now, Monica. We hit a few pubs last night. <laughs> so, so it might be drink lots of water as you're going lots on. Lots of water and um, just make the effort to just get up and get out in the morning to make yeah. sure that you don't miss anything. <laughs> We're here to talk about 10 books you should read, which is quite funny because I've only read 11 in my life. Gona's read none. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I'm a very small man in here who's read loads of books. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, who's going next? I go. I go. I'm going to bring you back to books now. I'm the serious person on this, on this panel. <laughs> I'm going to start with the classic because I just want to get it out of the way because I know this is the one everyone groans at because it's like, oh, fantastic. I'm going to go with Wuthering Heights. And I'm going to go with Wuthering Heights for, for a couple of reasons. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who've read Wuthering Heights, obviously, because it's a classic, but a lot of people have read it through school or through college. And I think then a lot of people haven't read it at all because, you know, all the classics are the same and they're all bloody boring and blah, blah, blah. And I think Wuthering Heights... First off, it's very misunderstood. It's not a romance. If you can find romance in Wuthering Heights, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> it's not a romance. It is a book about absolutely horrific people being horrific to each other. And the central relationship in it, the, the famed relationship between Cathy and Heathcliff, it's, I think it's about two people who are better, always do better apart than they do together. So, but the other reason I want to, to kind of recommend Wuthering Heights, and I think that people should come back to it, if they haven't read it in 20 years, or if they haven't read it in school, they should come back to it, because I think it works very well with our sensibilities now. Because we are talking about anti-heroes here, we're talking about people with complex personalities, we're talking about people who do heinous things. We're also, this is the controversial thing, I think this is a very funny book. I honestly think if you read it with that kind of modern sensibility now, it's very, very funny. The dialogue is cracking. It's vicious. Heathcliff, of course, like all the all the great devils, he gets all the best lines. <laughs> I think. I just, I, I don't know. Have you read it, Cole? 
But you know what? I thought you were talking about your book, actually, right? It sounds, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very like your book. You're on the street. It's about all these horrible people doing horrible things, but it's really funny and very tragic. And, I, and it's not a love story, but there's a love story in it kind of thing. And, and we are now talking to the book who I've just been told is a regular attender at the Ennis Book Club Festival. Am I right? How long have you been coming? I've been here since the very start, just well, a little over 10 years ago. Okay. I am the official mascot of the festival. So the great, one of the great things about being the mascot is people take a whole lot of pictures with you and they remember you year after year after year, which is really good to see. It's a very impressive costume. Can you tell me who made it? Uh, an old lady who died recently in her late 90s from Connemara. She spent approximately 18 months, I've been told, on the, on the actual, this alone, the actual book itself is around 18 months and she only spent, I believe, another six months still on the hash. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And uh, is it very warm to wear? No, it's actually very nice. Uh, the, the, the material inside is breathable. It's lovely. It's very light as well. This is very heavy. It's actually very light. Very, very light. So it's just really comfy inside. So can I ask, does book have a favourite book? Ooh. Interesting. I'm trying to take the amount I've read over the years. Um, I've been a huge fan of John Bolter. Uh, Paul Durkin as well, Paul Curran as well, huge into the whole um, Detective Allen, Detective Allen and the whole um, huge Morris man as well, huge mad Morris man myself and my mum, so yeah, big, big fan of uh, crime and investigative books. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much and enjoy the festival. Somebody interviewed me and said, do you feel as a woman that you're being discriminated against? And I'm like, no, of course not. I mean, because why would I? I just published and... It didn't feel like that. I'd been assisted by this movement, but I had no sense of the context in which I was in. I certainly didn't think of, think of it. I was blind about it. And then it became clear because of all the women around me who were continually uh, like uh, asserting themselves. There was a group of women at the Royal Board Theatre who basically assisted other women. But I wasn't seeing that I was being assisted. And it takes a little bit of time to understand that you have you are you are having this support. But the, and this is where my experience changes. It changes because you have this sense of yourself. And I'm, so I'm actually later starting than Ailish. Ailish is starting in the 70s in the sense that she's younger than, than me when you start. I'm maybe really where I, I actually am starting in my 30s. I'm not starting to publish until my 30s. That makes a big difference. And so in a way, so I'm a late developer getting into this. And um, I know that I was taking my son, uh, baby, the new baby, to the Royal Court Theatre and, and he was being looked after there, and which raised the whole matter of um, you're coinciding with the family cycle, yeah. which you are also responsible for. But the thing that, that is different is that it means that you hit, you hit that period which you don't know is coming. And every actress in the theatre knows about it, but as the writer I didn't, where you're standing there, you've reached the point where you're getting to your, as I regard it, mature and confident work, later work, the later work. You don't get to it because the light goes on. Suddenly the plugs are pulled and you're told, sorry, what? Sorry, how does this come to an end? Because it's an age thing. There's a point at which you're told, actually, and you don't, you also don't connect with it. Uh, this bit comes from the second chapter of the book, so it's 1952. 
Um, Cyril is living in Dublin in Dartmouth Square with his adoptive parents, Cyril, uh, Charles and Maud, who, they're, they're perfectly pleasant to him as parents, but they don't really look out for him, they don't um, treat him as a child, he's, he's almost treated like another adult in the house. So he's quite lonely, and he has no friends really, but then one day he's coming down the stairs, and he sees this other seven-year-old boy, Julian, sitting on a chair in the hallway, and immediately Cyril is just gobsmacked by him, and, um, wants to be his friend, and, and Julian's going to play a big part in Sarah's life going forward. On the afternoon that we met, we exchanged only a few pleasantries in the hallway before I invited him upstairs, as children do, to see my room, and he followed me cheerfully and without question to the top of the house. As he stood beside my unmade bed, examining the books on the shelves and the toys that lay scattered on the floor, it occurred to me that he was the first child, other than myself, ever to set foot in there. You're lucky to have so much space, he said, balancing on the tips of his toes as he looked out the window into the square beyond. You have all of this to yourself. Yes, I said, for my domain consisted of three rooms, a bedroom, a small bathroom, and a living area, which, I suppose, made it more of a self-contained apartment than anything else. Charles has the first floor, Maud has the second, and we all share the ground. You mean your parents don't sleep together, he asked. Oh, God, no, I said. Why do yours? Of course they do. But why? Don't you have enough bedrooms? <laughs> we have four, he said. My bedroom is next door to my sister's. Girls are strange creatures, don't you think? I don't know any, I admit it. I know lots. I love girls, even though they're crazy and mentally unbalanced, according to my father. It's only going to bear with Leon. I'm a great admirer of Tim, uh, Tim and Liam's work. And I'm the first to admit that in some ways it's more accurate, it is certainly more literal, uh, it is more exacting. Um, and I said to Miola, Camila, but if you want me to do it, I have to do it my own way. And my own way meant the spirit of the book as much as, as, much as the words of the book. And I was trying to get what it would have been like. Martin Lacaille made up words, Martin Lacaille took words from all over the place. And what I objected to in the earlier version was that it was, and I say this in the introduction, it was too much like. Um, what sing speak, this is the kind of Anglo-Irish gobbledygook I call it. And whatever problems we have with the Irish language being in trouble, that kind of English is dead. Nobody speaks like that, not even Michael Healy Ray speaks like that. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks standard English with a Kerry accent, and there's none of this stuff to it. And so this is, if you put that into their modes, what you're really saying is that these are peasants, they're ignorant, they speak a broken language, and of course, look, they're speaking an old classical language at the highest level. So, Shine and Fall, and Shine and Shine and the Horror Story, I was, it's only about Maham Rodman and Dorado, Shine and Fall, along the Fev, who gave the father, which you have to find, and so you waited so long for. By the way, there is a translation in Norwegian, and there's one in Czech just about, just coming And Danish, apparently. And Danish, apparently. Now, so let's give an example of some. Please. Yeah, so what I took I took a few sentences from from Alan's version and then from that other version from uh, Greater Clay and then from O'Connor from O'Kine's original. So here's uh, this is just about um well it's either called Tomas inside or Fireside Tom. He's the cousin of Nell and of Catriona. 
um, and both sisters are fighting over him because he has a field and they want when he dies that he leaves the field to them. And so they both, and the, the beauty, the most great scene is all, is that both sisters get their sons to retouch his roof so that he's happy. And they, one will retouch his roof, and then the next year, it'll be a fine patch, ready for seven or 15 years. The next year, the other brother will retouch, the other son will retouch the roof. He'll take off the original patch, and they just add it back and forth. You know, there's the beautiful Irish expression, um, the going back and forth of the fool, basically, getting nothing done, both are doing the same thing. But this is first Alan's version. You heard the fireside Tom had his lad hanging out all the time to marry someone, the cunt. He should have been saying his prayers. Then this is Bacanomora's uh, version. You heard them saying that Tomas inside is still mad to get married, a useless yoke. He'd be better employed preparing his soul for eternity. And then O'Hines. Hulatuya de Morgan, if Tomas then stayed spread a year of Polsig on E, on Connus. And Connus there means a slovenly or a useless person. On Connus. The horrible have a dear of a small, the horrible have a dear of an honour of the moor, doing his soul. So we are talking to Frank Golden, whose um, book uh, with Salmon Poetry was actually launched earlier today. Um, so it's, it's great to have a chat to you. Um, is this your first time at the Ennis Book Club Festival? Um, no. Um, I was here two years ago to launch a novel, um, The Night Game. And so we did that in the Temple Gate as well. But this time we were in the the big hall, the great hall. Um, so yeah, but it's a, a great venue, it's a great festival. Mm. Yeah, so but what, because it does feel like it has a very special sort of atmosphere, how would you describe it? Um, I think the book clubs, the fact that so many book clubs from around the country convene here um, and have been doing so for the last decade or so, um, you know, there's a conviviality, a, a generosity and a sense of community around the festival, you know? And the people of Ennis get involved, you know, and they support it. Absolutely. Um, now, you did say that you might read something from your new book for us? Sure, maybe something short. Please. Okay. Um, actually, I was on Clare Radio there during the week, um, and um, I read one uh, related to my father. My father was in the RAF, in the RAF, and he was based in North Africa during the Second World War. And um, I was later to go and spend time in the desert as well. So this is called The Delineation of Illusion. My life, my father's life, both a mirage waver. Taken image by image, act by act. They were, we can say, maculate, impaired. You think it is remakeable, the evidential life, a picture held in common, to find place, to find time, a consolidated self. I have my father's photographs, but who was the man who took Shelley and Francis Thompson to the war? Who stood in the level sands in the harvest fields of death? Who is he and who am I? In similar desert photos 40 years later, 30 years ago. I'm as alien to that self as he is to me. Bleached men both, hologrammed in separate rooms, flickering selves in waylight, scattering inscribed and fading pages in the Museum of the Dreamed. That's wonderful. Thank you very much, Frank, and best of luck with the book. Thank you.
there's a dead story, there's a dead history of America that's not documented, it's not sexy, no one wants to speak about it, but I've experienced it and I've seen it, and it was a conscious decision to, to, to go back there. And that became the Keepers of Truth, which I think you wrote longhand yeah, after so, hours and, in yeah. the Microsoft office, yeah. which so, I think you described as... Right. Like an Neanderthal on a spaceship. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't write if you typed anything out, uh, you'd be seen to do it. So you just have to spend, you know, 15, 16 hours a day there in this kind of valorous effort because, you know, Bill Gates is a lunatic back then and he's there all the time. You can't go home before the boss goes home. So at that stage, I was like, well, I mean, I would just go running for 15, 18 miles, come back in a sense of exhaustion, not ease, crazy about, like, what am I doing? And then shorthand, uh, in, in a meeting I just said, um, uh, I forget the accused of truth now, had a few drinks, but uh, it just began with a kind of eulogy to, um, we, oh yeah, we've made nothing in this town in over a decade. It's as though a plague befell our men. And that was in the midst of a meeting when I wrote that down. And of course I couldn't leave my job. I was married and, and, and had no kids at that stage. But I still said, you know, a couple of lines that almost is like a poem is not enough. I said, that genesis of something, I just, in the midst of this, do my day-to-day -day job. And I think writers sometimes have to, you know, you have to have the day job. You have to, I mean, the writing has to be pressured. It has to be that you have to do it. So, you know, I could have left at that stage. So I continued to do it. Um, the money was there, and I was making money, but then I was like, I need to be, put myself into this sense of deprivation. More or less, I, I think the biggest influence in my life would, would have been my grandfather, because he never made any money. But he was always a noble, uh, stately figure in my mind, so I had to try to return to stay where I was, but become a, a different person. So I wrote that by, by hand, and it was a manic effort. It was about three months uh, to writers. I sent it over to the, to, to the agent in England, and, or to the editor in England, and she just goes, and, and she's still my editor today, but she just goes, what are you writing that for? <laughs> like, you know, I'm supposed to be writing Irish-based stories, so this was a complete uh, flip. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we are talking to Cora Gunter who is one of the organizing committee of the Ennis Book Club Festival. Cora, it's Sunday morning and you're still standing, which is great. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So tell me, what do you think is so special about this festival? I think it is that it's, you know, genuine readers of the books that are coming to this and they feel that it's a, an event that they can access very easily. Um, the feedback has just been amazing. Um, not that we get everything right, but generally it's just how approachable the authors are with their readers and then how we try to facilitate nearly every request as much as possible, within reason of course. And it's just been a an absolute joy to be involved with the, the committee and the work and the preparation because the feedback has just been immense um, and just so rewarding. It's like anything, everyone says giving is always so much better and it has been. I mean, I haven't felt it's been work at all. It just has not felt like work. Don't tell my boss. <laughs> Thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. When the team was coming home from London and there was an, all of a sudden the boxers had all the medals and um, Keanu O'Connor had his medal and there was a homecoming arranged. Yeah. But um, on the day we were flying back, and everybody was supposed to go straight into Dublin, but Katie Taylor had already organized a homecoming in Bray that night, and some of the others had arranged things in their hometowns, and I said, well, you can't do that, because 
they've organized this already, so you can't just override it at the last minute. And it was, it was so much back and forth over it. And I spoke to somebody about it and they said to me, well, you have to go with your gut feeling and what's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, we can't go. We're not having it. A lot of my poems are around the idea of sport, of the things behind sport. When we were children in Mullybeck, our, our wonderful hurling pitch, all the way the hurling pitch, uh, back in the 60s, some of the boys, a few of the boys actually had flower bags, oddlums or rank, uh, which were made by their parents or their mothers, stitched for them. That's how some of them were quite poor, but it didn't stop us playing the game. And your first job when you joined, and I joined a group in, in my turn, they were older than me, so I, the first thing they do with the fellow in, in hurling is they put him in gold. And then he has to, he has to graduate. And, and, and I'll just say, in passing, I don't know why, I don't know how the GA haven't killed hurling. I think it's a disgrace what they're doing to hurling. As a Galway man, we've suffered, we, we should, we, we've been landed into all Ireland semi-finals and sometimes we've won them and got to finals and we have a worse record in losing finals, doing us no favours at all. Only for a crush time on at 69, hurling in Galway would be dead. That was one good decision they made along the way. That's the end of the politics. There's <laughs> the poem. Minding goal. One upshot of being stuck between the netless goalposts during hurling practice was the guarantee, at least, of the task and satisfaction of hanging the schlitter out. The other boys clashing and chasing, jerseyed in various county colours, dreamed themselves glorious. You squinted through oblique sunlight, or pretended the shape of ease, or crouched, or paced, depending. A save adorned the goal opposite, and swiftly the game turned. Solo specialist Joe closed in, all wrist and speed, as he balanced the slither on his hurley, before swiveling to lash it past your ear. What kept you there? Hardly the prospect of making a save, and retrieval was a long walk no one else would take. <laughs> a slash search through lank grass. Mullybeg, spring twilight, the losing and the laying claim, both implicit in a sphere of corded leather, tossed up before your face and given air. So we are finally talking to Paul Perry, who is the artistic director of the Ennis Book Club Festival. Um, Paul, your first year as director, how has the weekend been? It's been a fantastic weekend, Nessa. Thanks, uh, thanks for being here. Um, it's been an absolute roaring success um, from day one, from Friday morning, when we had Paul Jerkinry to 500 school children here at Glower. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. The people of Ennis are welcoming, the volunteers are hardworking, the committee has done everything in its powers to make the weekend enjoyable to our festival goers. So it's been an absolute pleasure. And Ennis appears to be quite an extraordinary venue or, or series of venues for, for an event like this. Yeah, well we've used Glore, which is a you know, professional professionally run theatre with a capacity of 480 plus seats um, which we've managed to fill out with Anne Enright and Don O'Ryan, uh, Michael Collins last night was fantastic, we had the Irish Times Book Club down, Rick O'Shea of course was here um, and he holds the largest book club online with nearly 6,000 members and he talked to John Boyne about his new novel 
Um, so it's been it's been jam packed. We've had some children events. Um, we had Caroline Busher talking about her latest novel. Um, so it's just been um, a lot of fun um, meeting uh, book readers, uh, book club members from all over the country actually and um, I think we've all had a lot of fun and had some great discussions and heard some great writing. So a long rest now for you, are you already planning next year's? Yeah, I mean that's that's what happens. People always, you know, I mean, a, a festival like this, you have to plan far in advance. So there is talk about um, what we'll do next year, um, and uh, you know, we're we're always kind of thinking about how to grow the festival, make it better. And I think you know, based on this year, that's going to be very difficult because everything just went to plan. It was like just a a beautiful thing this year. Yeah. Well, well done. I know we've enjoyed ourselves enormously and thanks for having us here. Yeah, thank you, Nessa, and thanks, Peter. Yes, I know That I'm just a dreamer Yes, I know That I'm just a dreamer I dream Cos it's the closest I'll ever get to you Thank you.